Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. So many great conversations over the years about so many great movies. And some stinkers. Well, true. But you know, producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. In season three, we covered even more great adaptations like The Night of the Hunter and It Happened One Night, both part of our Couples on the Run series. We talked about No Country for Old Men. The Coen brothers so rarely adapt someone else's work. We had some fun rom-com adaptations like About a Boy, based on the Nick Hornby novel, and Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist, adapted from Rachel Cohn and David Levithan's book. In our terribly and naively named foreign language series, we discussed the brilliant City of God and the Diving Bell and the Butterfly, which I won't ever be able to watch again, ever. But could you read the original memoir? I don't know, maybe? We had our Richard Dysart series with adaptations like The Day of the Locust and Being There. Plus, we had that fantastic interview with the man himself. <laughs> the one where we had him sit on the floor? Because this chair was so squeaky. <laughs> Good times. We did our first Tom Hanks series with Forrest Gump adapted from Winston Groom's novel, plus Apollo 13 based on Lost Moon by Jim Lovell. And we did another year series looking at films from 1981, including Das Boot, Gallipoli, and Thief, all based on books. Listeners can dive deeper into all of these original stories and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book, play, movie, video game. Video game. <laughs> you bet. We have talked about some video game adaptations as well. It doesn't matter the source, just follow the link. Every purchase supports the podcast. Check out the full list at thenextreel.com slash originals and get reading, watching, performing, or playing today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. 
In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. All right, Andy. I was I was born a poor black child. <laughs> the jerk. <sighs> ding, ding, ding. All I need is this lamp and this phone. All I need is this lamp and this phone and this chair. But that's all. But that's all. I don't remember it. It would be better if I remembered it exactly. I've never actually seen that movie. Wait, I've only seen wait, what? Bits. I've only seen bits. Ah, <laughs> uh, Andy. Oh man. I know. Steve I, Martin series. I grew up. I get apparently quite neglected. That's a for a guy who's seen so many movies. Not to see that one, it is an embarrassment. Yeah. How did I miss that one? I, don't I mean, know. it's definitely one my parents wouldn't have shown me as a child but uh, uh, i don't know when, when was That's that 79 really yeah 79 yeah yeah i just never ended up ended up seeing that carl reiner directed that i had no idea yeah yes that's all of that is true <laughs> oh it's a good one it's it, my name is in print oh classic Okay, uh, Andy, do we have any stories this week? I feel like, I don't know, do you have any I have no stories, I, and I, have I tell you, I'm a little bit anxious to get a move on. Yeah, I think we should just get a move on here. Shall we tell the people where we're from? Where are we from? everybody it's the next reel the film podcast i'm pete wright that's andy nelson <laughs> sorry <laughs> i didn't know i was supposed to introduce myself. i know you know i thought i'm gonna shake it up a little bit and just see if he's listening or if he's taking a drink or what and we spoil movies that's what like, we do you have a thing now there for that no too? I, was, I was gonna but no, no. <laughs> So far, this is going really well. Uh, and uh, you can find out more about the show at thenextreel.com. You should definitely go do that. You should read the blog stylings of the goodly, kindly, once and future king, Steve Sarmento. Uh, you should catch up with us on all the various social platforms, Facebook, Google+, Twitter. We'd love to hear from you in all of those places. And uh, that's, uh, that's it. That's the whole thing. Now, again, because we are recording this just a little bit ahead of time, uh, we don't have an official... Instagram, hashtag guess the movie, hashtag pony prize, uh, outsmarted Stephen Smart versus the people challenge. But I bet, like last week, it was awesome. Uh, also awesome. Yes. yes. <laughs> uh, and so make sure you head over to Instagram and uh, look for us over there because that's where the games, the games begin. Do you listen to uh, Doug Loves Movies? Uh, no. Doug Benson. I, I, I have. I oh, have, my yes. goodness. Oh, my goodness. It's been getting so good. Yeah. He's so funny. 
<laughs> but he does it his bane voice is rather infectious. Oh, that's nice. So the, the, I, the, I apologize titles. for for pilfering his bane <laughs> voice just there. Is that what that was? That was that. It's I, better than the the Andy as a Muppet voice that you did. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that's what we have going on there, and uh, I think uh, I think we don't have any other news. I think we should jump right into trailers. <laughs> Hey, do you want to go first? I think you should go first because you're so happy and and then sort of weird. (laughs) I think I should go first because uh, this is a big one. This is a big film that's coming out in July. And it's it's a big uh, ape movie. People may have heard of this. They may have heard. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think they may have? If they were cruising the Pacific Rim, perhaps. (laughs) This, This is... It, this could be the sequel to the latest Planet of the Apes story. This very well could be. But this is not Dawn of the Planet of the Apes that I'm talking about. Oh, no. This is actually so much better. Oh, it no. Is... <laughs> That's exactly the response. Oh, oh no. <laughs> this is Mr. Go. Uh, or as it says in the trailer, Mr. Go, 3D. <laughs> That's right, folks. Uh, it's almost like a Planet of the Apes spinoff. It seems this, this is, is what a... this is actually. This is actually the interstitial film. It should. It was. It happened between Planet of the Apes and Dark. Yeah, they managed to capture a gorilla who somehow, you know, was acting a little more normal. Yeah. Yeah, no, but this is the story about a gorilla who is uh, recruited from a circus uh, by a little girl, and they be- they become friends, and, and the gorilla, as he gets older, is recruited to play baseball in the Korean Baseball League. And uh, I, I, I mean, I gotta say, it looks like a real gorilla playing play baseball. That is fantastic. This is like the uh, the uh, a reboot of uh, Ed. What was it called? Ed? That movie that uh, Matt LeBlanc was in. <laughs> With him and the chimpanzee playing baseball back I'm, in 86. You know what? I am ashamed and much chagrined to say that I didn't see that film. Oh, you should be. Yes, it was Ed, 1996, uh, with Matt LeBlanc and a chimpanzee playing baseball. But no, this is so much better. This is a gorilla. Why is this better? Uh, because it's a gorilla. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I don't know what to say about this film other than it looks just absurd. Um, and there's something about it that actually just uh, makes me glad that people are still making nonsensical movies like this. <laughs> I just, just there, like nonsense. You watch the trailer and it's just there. There's a thing where the gorilla jumps off the baseball top of the stadium. Yeah. And it's it's like they clearly the cut was funny because they cut to like the weirdest crowd reaction ever. <laughs> right. Like this gorilla yeah. jumps off this like ten story, <laughs> like off of the top of this major league baseball stadium, and the crowd is like, "Oh, awesome!" <laughs> I, that just it just seemed wrong. So I look forward yeah. to it. I do. I'm I look forward. To, I'm going to catch this. It'll be a renter. This will be you know I'll watch this and Wolf Cop back to back. I think that'll be a good <laughs> double. Piece. I I think I would probably <laughs> watch it back to back with the host. Oh, oh, there you go. I like to keep it. Uh, I'm going to go light Korean, dark Korean yes. films, and yes. that would be one of the light Korean films, the lighter fare. 
Yes, definitely. And, uh, kind of the comedy sports drama yes. genre. Uh, it's opening in July in South Korea, and it does not surprisingly have a U.S. release date yet. Right. It will be, except unless you're in Hawaii in, uh, nope, that was last year. Never mind. <laughs> it did play at the Hawaii Film Festival last October, but, <laughs> but that's it. So uh, I know I'm a bit of a tease, but, you know, maybe it'll pop up one of these days on uh, Netflix or something. But that's it. Mr. Go. Mr. Go. <laughs> My trailer is uh, Jeremy Renner. This is his, I, I believe this is the first film that he is actually producing. It's called Kill the Messenger. Uh, it is based on a true story, um, based off of the book by the same name and another book called Dark Alliance by Gary Webb. So Michael uh, Michael Cuesta directs uh, book was uh, the original book was written by Nick Shu and Dark Alliance by Gary Webb. And uh, this is uh, it's one of those films. You know what it reminds me of? It has a distinctly the insider vibe to it. Um, uh, it's a, a journalist that is trying to uncover this uh, uh, drugs weapons thing, and uh, it's very. It looks very intense, and it has. Uh, it's again one of those movies with everybody in it. Uh, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, um, Robert Patrick is back. Mm-hmm. Tim Blake Nelson, Ray Liotta, Michael K. Williams looks fantastic. Barry Pepper, Andy Garcia, Rosemary DeWitt, Oliver Platt, King, 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 Richard, Michael Sheen, Richard Schiff. Joshua Close, of course, Jeremy Renner, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, Paz Vega, Michael Sheen, yes. Looks yeah. like a great cast. The trailer looks very intense. These are This kind of movie, you know. I mean, you know where like all the President's Men stands up for me. Oh, yeah. Um, hell, I even loved the paper. <laughs> uh, so you give me a good story about journalists, and I'm all over it. So yeah, looks, looks really like- good. It does, and I'm excited to see it. It, uh, it has uh, the period vibe from the early 80s. And <laughs> I love how that's a, uh, that's a period, eighties. <laughs> yeah. What a period yeah. it was! What a period. At least it's at least it's like the grown up eighties and not like the the teenage eighties that we were in yeah. or the preteen eighties. You know oh, that was goodness, that, that was, was totally almost like a different eighties. Yeah. <laughs> uh. Like these weren't people who were popping their collars. And, no. And all that. <laughs> the David Naughton eighties. Yes. Yes. Uh, yes. No, it looks really good. It opens October 10th, 2014. So we've got a couple of months, but check out the trailer at thenextreel.com. You'll see it on this uh, this very week's post. Very cool. That's it. All right. And now, let's go save the world. You and me together forever. The theory of randomness says it's all simply coincidence. There is no grand meaning making it possible for you to be sitting here in this riveting lecture. (laughs) Fifty years ago, the students of William Dawes Elementary imagined what the future might hold. Today, we unveiled their legacy. Okay, why are you showing me this? It's a list of dates. Every major global disaster for the last 50 years in perfect sequence. From a piece of paper that's been buried in the ground for five decades. The next number on the chain predicts that tomorrow, 81 people are going to die in some kind of tragedy. Get off the train. Why? What's wrong? Just take the baby and get off the train. 
estimates put the presumed dead at 81. The prediction came true. It's not coincidence. Don't let him watch the news. Why won't you tell me what's going on? What do you want with my son? The numbers are a warning. They're a warning to everyone. This is not a test. This is an emergency broadcast transmission. We're going to stay on the air for as long as possible. Are we gonna die? I will never let that happen, Caleb. Do you hear me? Never. Andy, we are picking up, uh, picking up our Guilty Pleasure series. Time for more guilt. More guilt. And guilt do we have. Uh, I, <laughs> so this was a series that, uh, that we started as a, as a gag, as a goof, as shenanigans, uh, to just see if we could surprise each other with a guilty pleasure last week. If you'll remember, we did, uh, my favorite guilty pleasure, but the adventures of Buckaroo Banzai across the eighth dimension. And this week it's Andy's turn. Andy, would you like to introduce your film? Yeah, I went a little more serious. Did you ever? Well, and, and like I said, uh, you know, I was really trying to figure out what what is a guilty pleasure for me, and it, I, I determined it was something that I really love that uh, the critics and the crowd seem to not <laughs> love at all. <laughs> uh, and so I went with uh, one of my favorites, uh, which I I really really enjoy, and it's Knowing from two thousand nine. And um, it's, you know, it, Nicolas Cage vehicle. Uh, Alex Proyas directed it. And it's an end-of-the-world thriller. And, uh, you know, it's got kind of a, kind of a mystery, this sci-fi mystery thing going on with it. And I have uh, a lot of fun watching it, and I think it's doing a lot of really interesting things. But no one else seemed to think that, <laughs> or very few people. On Rotten Tomatoes, it, it was a 33% uh, on the uh, tomato meter with critics and 42 percent with uh, with the audience, so it seems to be something that I mean, it's not as bad as you know, uh, you know, Grown Ups or Grown Ups Two or some many of the Adam Sandler films, but um, people just didn't seem to click with this. But it does have its contingency of fans. Roger Ebert, one of them. So at least I feel like I've got you know at least one person in my camp that uh, makes me happy so Rogers on your side Rogers That's on right. my side but yeah this is a film that uh, I really love I, I kind of came out of it like Roger Ebert surprised that a lot of people um, really hated it hmm okay so like last week you had not seen my guilty pleasure right. I had not seen knowing all right at least I'm pretty sure I had not seen knowing <laughs> it may have just not been memorable for me. Uh, but I did see it. And let me tell you, I this movie has a lot going for it, right? I mean, Alex mm -hmm. Proyas, we know we love Alex Proyas um, from Dark City, uh, is, is one of my uh, favorite films. Uh, I, I really loved the, the sort of atmosphere that he builds uh, in his films. And, and you know, well, I, I didn't know much about... The uh, the writers, you know, uh, we have Ryan Douglas Pearson, who has had written really only um, a, a, the novel Mercury Rising, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then Knowing. Uh, and uh, the other writer was, uh, let's see, well, there were a lot of people on it, but Julia uh, Juliet Snowden, uh, who has written a bunch of other stuff, well, not a bunch, a handful of other things at this point, just a, a short and boogeyman. Um, 
So, you know, the, the, the writing team was reasonably inexperienced, right? The sort of yeah. indie, indie crowd. Uh, but still, they turn out a, 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 what I think is actually an interesting um, sort of mystery kind of thriller around these numbers. And I think, uh, you know, the overall story, I... I really like. Uh, I think it's got, um, you know, I found myself interested in the mystery. I felt like they didn't fall prey to to some of the kind of obvious obstacle tropes, you know, the best friend who doesn't get it and and becomes, you know, the one of the major obstacles. He ends up getting it and he tries to help. And, and you know, we, we get the mystery as it, as it unravels. Right. Um, I like how the film builds. I like the haunting of the voices. I love how they use the sort of symbol of children as deliverance of uh, the end, but also as salvation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I love all of that stuff. Uh, and then the film ends, and it falls apart for me. I just hate the end so much. <laughs> well, and I think, you know, I don't know if, if that was what everyone had a problem with. I, I'm really not quite sure what it was that uh, that drove people away. I mean, I talked to one friend who didn't like it. He felt like the ending came out of left field. He felt like he it was building in a direction that all of a sudden it didn't make sense when he got to the end. And I think he's completely wrong. I think everything about the build uh, makes sense. The strangers as these kind of omnipresent beings that are uh, communicating through their minds with these children the uh, the mystery of these numbers and the predictions that they're making everything feels like it's building to something and i think it builds to a big a big finish and i think the finish is one of the um reasons that i love the film so much the fact that the uh the filmmakers the writers and the directors everyone involved um were really kind of brave enough to take an end of the world thriller where you don't get to save the world where the hero doesn't get to uh, you know, do the one thing that actually uh, keeps Earth safe. This is a film that is actually about the end of Earth and the end of everything that we know. And I think that was an incredibly uh, risky decision to actually do that, where at the end of the film we see Earth completely destroyed by these mag- just gargantuan solar flares. And, and then to kind of almost open it up to like this this biblical um you know idea of a new adam and eve and the whole uh you know the the interesting blend that the film has of the the science and the uh, religion and the the myths and and it kind of blends all of this stuff together in a really interesting way that for me I find really exciting and the way that these beings aren't really angels but they have this angelic presence to them you can get a sense of how people long long ago if these visitors had come and and stopped by in their ship and people had drawn them it would look like uh, you know angels essentially the way that these beings are presented and when they they you know take these children on board and rise into the heavens and deposit these beings on a new planet so that they can basically start anew. I love that whole idea, how basically they are, they've created a really interesting way to kind of combine this science fiction and this religion in a way that, you know, it, it ties into people who talk about 
uh, how aliens have visited long ago. They're the ones who built all those, um, you know, the the pyramids and all those, you know, those. I, I don't know what you call those things, but those hills that you look at from from the sky and you can see it's like a big snake shape. Uh, all those sorts of things, and the uh, um, just all those sorts of things, and they they say that these aliens had had come and visited, and a lot of these ancient paintings, these religious paintings, people say, um, you know, some of these uh, could be portraying aliens rather than um, rather than anything biblical, and so it's a very interesting meshing of all of that in a way that I think works really well, and the fact that it does tie into kind of the rebirth of a new earth with these children deposited on a new planet. I love it. See, that's the thing that I, I find that, that I found really distracting. I don't know that I necessarily agree with your friend that, uh, that it came out of left field. I, I think it is building towards something. Uh, but I feel like the, the films, I, I, I kind of have a hard time. And I've, I wrote a lot about this, just sort of rambling. I sort of felt like I was the kid writing numbers, trying to put my thoughts together for this film. And I, it didn't really work. Um, because my only comparison is the scope of the mystery felt very much like the sixth sense to me. Right. And the, once we realized what the, the trick was with the sixth sense, um, it was a very profound, but, um, profound awakening that we had as an audience or that I had as an audience member. But it was an awakening that felt on the same scale as the presentation of that mystery in the film. Does that make sense? Sure. No, that makes total sense. I know where you're going with this. Okay. So knowing, I think, builds a, a really interesting concept and has a, a, a delicious little conceit in it. And I love how he goes about the process of solving this mystery. And then... Boom, it blows up into one of the he- most heavy-handed kind of deliveries of the mystery uh, that that just doesn't feel like it is parallel or it's on par with in terms of the scale, the kind of emotional scale with the rest of the film. It's, it is, it's an, uh, a, a climax that is like too big for its proverbial britches for me. Uh, And and so I had a real problem with that. I found it really distracting, and it took me out of the movie. And watching the kids run across the field to the the shimmering tree was was just it. So, you know, I I felt like I really liked a lot of what the movie had going for it, and I was super disappointed in the ending. Um, But I feel like the film does deliver a lot of the things that I love about Alex Proyas in a way that I haven't seen him make films before. Dark City was so different. Uh, from this film, just visually, spatially, uh, that I, I, I found myself really enjoying looking for Alex Proyas tropes in this film, right, in a world that was much closer to our own. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I had a lot of fun watching that part of it. Uh, I, I do have to say, I can't, I can't get past Nicolas Cage. Oh, see, I think he's good in this one. I know. I I, you know there are just there are a few movies. I, this is a taste thing. What are you going to do? Like, I well, just have, yeah. He's just the, the overacting bit. And honestly, uh, Rose Byrne goes into some crazy overacting herself. Like she, her little freakouts, I, I find again, come kind of out of left field in a way that, uh, you know, we would have done another take if I had been in the director's chair. <laughs> I, I I think that uh, it's a film where if you're if you're in it and you're riding along with it, I I think everything works 
I don't know. I, I find everything works really well for me. I think Rose Byrne does a great job in this film. I think Nicolas Cage does a great job. I mean, he's one of those actors who has done some crazy stuff, and he seems to just kind of take every job that's thrown at him, plenty of which are just garbage. Um, but I think people, because of that, I think that people forget that Nicolas Cage actually, there is a really great actor inside there. I mean, if you look at, uh, you know, um, uh, the Leaving Las Vegas, if you look at uh, Moonstruck, um, if you look at, um, I, I, I use this, but I, I hesitate to use it with you since you don't like it. But drive I think angry. That You're going to say drive angry. <laughs> I don't think I'll Season say Season of the angry. Witch. There are, there are instances where he shows that he really knows how to act. And I think, I think this is one of them. Now, as far as the story, let me uh, uh, respond to your comment earlier. I, I, I totally get what you're coming from about the story. And I, this is something I've really had to um, wrestle with because as much as I enjoy this film, I do, uh, I do totally get where you're coming from as far as the size of the mystery compared with the size of what's really going on and how do those really fit together. I don't know if... Even I am 100% satisfied, um, but, I, but the reason that I think all of it works for me and the reason that in, in my sense of what's going on in the story is that this is really, uh, you know, this father-son story. Um, you know, he is dealing with his son. You know, he's a widowed father, and he's, he doesn't, uh, he's just, you know, dealing with his son still. He's still lost. He's also distant from his own father. So there's this interesting relationship going on between the three of them, Nicolas Cage right in the middle. And his son, Caleb, I don't think is really ready to go with these strangers. I mean, he talks to them. He, um, you know, takes the little black rocks from them, all that sort of stuff. But when the time comes, he's the one who wants to lock the doors in the car and uh, Rose Byrne's daughter, uh, she wants to... Uh, open the doors. Abby, she wants to open the doors and kind of go with the alien or these, these strangers, aliens, angels, whatever you're going to call them. I, my sense of the reasoning behind this mystery in the context of the story, this is really a story about Nicolas Cage having to um, get his son in a place where he's comfortable to go. And so I think that's what this whole mystery is about. It's, it's, it's changing his mind about the way things are and this kind of the whole, you know, he brings up the beginning the the uh, determinism of the world versus the randomness and how is the universe really put together? And, you know, based on the fact that his wife died in this hotel fire, um, he really just thinks that, you know, things just happen. He doesn't seem to, and he's a scientist also. Um, but when all of this starts happening and he starts getting these numbers and realizing these mysteries are out there, he starts unraveling it. And through that process and unraveling it and realizing it, like these, this mystery is designed specifically for him to figure out what's going on, find out what's going to happen, and then be able to help his son let go so that his son will go with these strangers. See, I, I think these strangers are guiding him to come with them, but I don't think they would ever willingly take him. Now, they do hop in the car and take him. So, <laughs> so apart from that. Apart from that, but I don't think they would have taken him onto the ship. I don't think they would have. 
I think that they would have gotten him there and it would have had to be his own decision. Now, this right, is me right. reading into the movie, but that's how I see it. I think it has to be, in order for it to work, I think it would need to be his own decision to get on and go with these guys up to this new planet and start things all over again. Now, this whole thing, I think, is designed so that Nicolas Cage gets there, meets him there at the ship, and they have the conversation. And Nicolas Cage, they, they have that bonding moment where the father tells his son, you have to go, you have to do this, I'm going to be okay. And, he, and his son finally feels okay to go. That's how I piece all of this together with the mystery story, with the end of the world story. Uh, and because I, I think that these guys, these angels beings know that they need these kids to go with them. And so that's, that's my interpretation of it. And are the little black stones, I have another question, but are the little black stones like, uh, are they uh, the, like the peanut butter things in E.T.? <laughs> Reese's Pieces. Reese's Pieces. <laughs> like, is that where, I mean, I, what's the significance of the little black stones? I don't know if there's a significance to them other than it's interesting. It's, um, is it? <laughs> I, I think so. I think they're, they're a strange little thing. It's, it's like something that they give you. It's strangers giving them little tidbits of something to kind of, you know, get them excited about this I love, possible I love thing. the idea, though, of the fact that they're giving these little black stones, and then ultimately nobody gets it. <laughs> like, oh, I don't, I, I'm sorry. No, we put these stones there. I don't. I have no idea. What did you want us to do with that? You're supposed to like Reese's Pete. Nothing. I, I imagine that conversation on the spaceship. I I deeply appreciate the way you read into this. I and I can see it. I can see a faint glimmer of where you're going with this thing. But I honestly, I I don't. I think that may be a weakness leading up in the film, leading up to the ending, that causes me to not like the ending. I. I don't see a strong enough case in the relationship between father and son that it is this transi- transformational kind of relationship that that it is dad trying to get the son ready. What I see more of is dad's super depressed because he lost his wife and mostly he's you know he, he's obsessed with these numbers. Like the the relationship with the son seems ancillary to the journey. Like it's 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 a chase because the son is you know doing his own thing too with the girl and uh, but but I just don't see a strong enough relationship there to make that final uh, countdown as he's at the landing site um, something that is um, you know that that isn't a slap in the face, an adjustment, well, a, a, an irrational adjustment of scale. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I I again I can see what you're saying, and I I acknowledge that there are elements that could have made it a stronger case for me. If the film, well, had, I think the bigger if some question... of the things had had been done a little differently, but I I still see it there, and and for my money, when I watch this film, I I buy into everything that's going on. This is and, and this I think is a big question for me, which is why do you think, as someone who really likes this film, why do you think it it you know didn't create uh, more resonance? Well, I I mean, you know, it's interesting. I mean, Roger Ebert. You know, he gave it a, a four-star review, which is his highest review. And um, then shortly after that, when he realized everyone hated it, wrote another article uh, called Love and Hate and Knowing, or Do Wings Have Angels? And it starts with, either I'm wrong or most of the movie critics in America are mistaken. And it's pretty funny. I, I mean, 
I, I think that he was perplexed too. And I, I'm perplexed, but I can see these story problems because I totally acknowledge the point that you're making about this film, that it's, it's a weak connection uh, between these two elements, the mystery of the numbers and the end of the world, as far as the fact that, uh, you know, he's trying to unravel what's going to happen and where and see if he can save people because, you know, he, he thinks that he was given this thing and he wants to try to stop these things. Like when he goes to try to stop the subway, crash, right, right. you know, um, and it doesn't work at all. He, you know, he can't actually do it. And then the EE the everyone else. And when he realizes that everyone is going to die, I mean, how are you going to stop that? And you can't just go hide in a cave. It's going to be so much worse than that. So I just, uh, I think it was a film that hit people exactly like it hit you. I don't think people liked the whole, uh, the change in scale. You know, it goes from a mystery that uh, had a really interesting premise and then it turns into this, you know, this gargantuan uh, galactic disaster, really. You know, this anomaly that happens with this giant solar flare that really just kind of incinerates the entire ozone layer on Earth and basically causes everything to just burn up, burn to a crisp. And I, you know, I think that that I think that's it. I really think that that's what people just didn't like about it is that it all of a sudden it's it that did, and that's probably what my friend meant when he said it came out of left field. Is that this change in scope all of a sudden it didn't feel like it fit anymore? And and like I said, I totally acknowledge that it's there. I also agree that there is this change in scale, um, and I think that it, that is the thing that made it hard for people to get into the film. Yeah. I, I think that's the, I, I think that was the, the tough thing for me. It's almost like the film, um, the film, it, it's like it, it makes its bed in the first two acts and then has a rather complicated journey to actually sleep in it. Yeah. That's, that's sort of what it feels like Or it goes, or it, goes, or it, it goes and sleeps in, in the, and, it goes and sleeps in the bed in the mansion around the corner. Right, right, right. It's, it is, uh, it, it just sort of, it, it doesn't jive. Now, there are a lot of things that are good about it. I do want to talk about some of the, of the visual surprises that I, I thought were really nice. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Because the film really does start off modestly, visually modest. Right. I mean, it's, it is a small film, right? We start in the, you know, what is it? nineteen. 60 some odd 59 1959 and uh we're we're in a second grade class that's just the school yeah we're in the school um and uh you know so they have this this is the grand opening of this school and uh they're starting this process by burying a uh, time capsule right in the front steps of the school for 50 years and for some reason uh they do think that that the ultimate find at the end of 50 years Will be a uh, a class <laughs> classes worth of second grade sketches about what they think the future looks like. I wonder <laughs> if they could come up with a few more trinkets that might go into a time capsule. But I thought that was an interesting play. Yeah. Um, uh, but it, it starts out like that, and then suddenly, you know, we we jump to the few to the present uh, or to two thousand nine, and we meet our protagonist and we see his depression we see him in the classroom teaching we get a lot of this sort of uh human interest drama uh as we get to know him and then after he starts figuring out the numbers as the the numbers represent uh major human catastrophes 
right? Where, where mm-hmm. humans died, right? Uh, on a date right. and a longitude and latitude. And I think, was it the first one was the airplane? Yeah. Uh, well, the, the first one that, that happens in his, in his present time, right, is yeah. the airplane crash. Which comes, talk about coming out of left field in a really nice way. Yeah. Uh, I, I found that just wonderfully and perfectly jarring. Oh, yeah. Like, I, I was watching it at home on my not-theater-sized screen, and <laughs> I still found myself on my edge of my seat during that. That was just—it was a great crash. It was it was a great sort of use of visuals, and uh, I did really love that sequence. I loved him running in there trying to figure out how to help well, in, and, and, and being helpless. And they build the tension really smartly, I think, because he's stuck in traffic— trying to uh, get to his kid's school to pick him up. And it happens to be on this date that is on this list of numbers. And then at that moment, as he's stuck in this traffic jam and he sees there's some sort of accident up ahead, he looks at his GPS and his coordinates read the same numbers that are the last, or the numbers, the mystery numbers he still hasn't solved after um, the, uh, the date and the number of people who die. And he, it all clicks for him that this is the next accident. And the, t- the way the tension plays with him running up to the cops to try to figure out what just happened. Did somebody die? How many people? Um, leading to them just turning and seeing that plane careening out of the sky and just l- crashing into the field. And the way that that whole thing is done in one shot yeah. is mind-boggling. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it really, it was, uh, Alex Proyas really went to great lengths to stage this this uh, scene where you get to see the the whole plane crash really from one shot and done in a way where um, purposefully they are trying to emphasize the fact that, you know, we're not just doing this whole thing with CG. We're actually um, making a real thing here so that you really feel viscerally attached to it. And I find it so incredibly just intense and tense it's it's very um hard to watch because it's just it's it's kind of horrifying you're as he runs out into the field and he sees these burning people and he tries you know putting them out and and one guy gets engulfed in flames as something blows up and he's you know just doing everything he can to help and then the the firemen come up and and kind of take over and and uh and and are asking him are you okay and thinking he's a uh, some somebody who survived the accident and everything i mean it's it's really astounding. And then going from that into just him kind of in that shocked state afterward, I, I think that works so well for me. I, I think this is such a strong scene in the film. I, I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree with that. And, and you know, they follow it up with a, another really powerful sequence of destruction, right? I mean, as we, we kind of recover, but only a little bit. Yeah. Uh, and then we're in the subway. Right. Uh, and we have a subway that derails and careens into the uh, into a crowded subway station and yeah. uh it is there's just massive destruction and the visuals in this sequence i think are a little bit strange to me it's like it it i i can't did you do you notice what i'm anything off about the uh, cg of this um not not really i mean i'm not quite sure specifically what you're speaking I don't of know i mean what to, as the as the train comes off the rails and is on its side and it's coming through the through the station there was something that was just a little off about it but mesmerizing at the same time like i oh interesting i found it just sort of stunning uh and and i thought that um you know again like the airplane it puts you in this space of um you know it, it, 
you're in a roller coaster. I mean, you really are on this roller coaster in the second act as he is uncovering all of these um, these bits of destruction. Uh, and, and I think so the pacing of the first two acts, I think, is really nice. It starts on a slow burn, and then we discover what's got, what it's all about, and then suddenly we are in it, man. We are all in it with him, and we're on the road, and we get it, right? Yeah. Um, you know, then we meet Rose Byrne a little bit late in the film, I think. Uh, and we realize that Rose Byrne is the daughter of Lucinda, who was the girl in 1959 who had the first um, right. bit of weirdness. And can I just say that teacher in 1959 is terrible? <laughs> like, worst teacher ever. The girl's in a in a demonic trance, and all she can write is a page of a full page of tiny numbers, and the teacher doesn't do anything. Right. <laughs> Not only that, but when she goes to hunt for her, let's use the flashlights and not and turn, turn the off, school lights yes, on. Yes, we're going to turn off all the lights in the school because clearly that's what draws children out. <laughs> it's just yeah, terrible. Yeah, that's always a little illogical. So there were, there were some moments there that were just terrible. But, but um, you know, so we, we get this connection. That, that becomes our human connection to 1959. And now we have a little mini family kind of moving through the journey together. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Rose Byrne generally is somebody that I I quite like. Um, I I did have some trouble with her in this one, but only really when she when she goes crazy. Well, her kids, you know, her daughter gets kidnapped. <laughs> yeah, but it was even before that. It was when she yelled at she turned around and yells at her kids for something. I can't remember what it was. She was in the in the car. She was yelling at them in the back, and her her response was like, just it just was not. I I was not her. It was not her. Yeah. So I didn't, I just, there was a lot of her that I didn't, didn't quite buy, but, uh, she doesn't end up making it. No, no. She has a, a pretty horrific, uh, it's not, it's not horribly horrific, but it's definitely not a fun way to die. I mean, it's a bad car crash and it's, uh, and it's a she bad met, car crash and her kids watch it. And she, yeah, right. Her kids watch it and she met her, uh, she exactly her mother's prediction died on the day that her mother said she would. So. That's got to be something horrible for your mother to tell you. <laughs> You're going to die on this date. Yeah, that's that's really awful. Very, uh, very not cheery. Um, so this is a <laughs> film about mother issues. <laughs> hey, mother, mother issues. Am I right? <laughs> uh, okay. So let's talk uh, then a little bit about uh, other folks in the film that you uh, you particularly fond of. Anybody else that jumps out? Yeah, I think, you know, they shot this on the red. This was a film that, uh, you know, back in 2009, it wasn't super uh, um, early for somebody to be using red. I think they very effectively shoot on the red. I think it works really well in the context of this film. Simon uh, Duggan was the director of photography. And I think it has a great kind of just a look that fits the tone of the whole film. I mean, uh, I think all of it works really well. He's a, a based uh, or he's from New Zealand and he works a lot down there uh, he, with uh, Baz Luhrmann. He did Great Gatsby. Um, he's done uh, iRobot with Alex Proyas again. And uh, so he's, he's somebody who's worked down there. He hasn't been around that long, just since uh, 98. Um, but I think he's got a, a good look, and he knows how to work with directors who have ambitious visions. Uh, Great Gatsby was a beautiful film with 
gorgeous production design and costume design, and I think his his cinematography captured all that well. In knowing, I think it it captures everything very well in context of what's going on in this film. I I, I really enjoy the cinematography here. I sort of can't believe that he's doing Warcraft. Yeah, I heard that. Yeah. Somebody was telling me about that. I can't remember what they were saying, but uh, I think it was who is it is directing that? Maybe that's what it is. Oh, it's Duncan. Um, yeah, Duncan Jones. Duncan Jones. That's Jones. right. That's right. That's mm-hmm. just crazy. That just seems crazy to me. I know, crazy to me too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Marco Beltrami did the score. I I really like the score. I mean, it's not an easy score to just sit and listen to, but it does have a very haunting tone to it. And I do find that as you get to the end and it's like that redemption feel, uh, you know, once the world ends and you have these children on this new world, there's this very much a redemption and rebirth sort of uh, tone to the music. And I love it. Uh, You know, I agree with you. And I think in that respect, I think the music's better than the end itself. Uh, (laughs) I did. I did quite like it. And, uh, you know, and then I think as far as the uh, uh, the rest of it, I mean, Ch- Chandler Canterbury, a young find to play um, Nicolas Cage's son. I think he does a great job in the film. I mean, you know, he's he's uh, I like we were saying, I think that there could have been more of him. There could have been more of the development with the father son story. But I do think he does uh, a solid work. He uh, actually had worked on uh, Benjamin Button. Right. Yeah, He was a young Ben. Yeah, yeah. Or, or an old Ben. <laughs> huh? Am I right? That's right. Yeah, what how where was he age wise? He was like yeah. eight. He was like yeah. Ben age eight. Right. He's the one I think who's like playing the piano and is losing his memory and very upset right. toward the end of the film. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and yeah, okay, go ahead. Um I'll, I'll save that. Oh, okay. No, and no, then no, lo- you go ahead. Okay, no, really. then <laughs> What were you saying? <laughs> and Lara Robinson, I think, is is creepy as uh, she does a good job playing both the young Lucinda in 1959 and uh, Abby, uh, Rose's Rose Byrne's daughter in 2009. I think she does a good job playing both of those. And actually, Rose Byrne plays the Lucinda grown up. We see that photo of her as she's grown up. So both of them kind of play each other's right. uh, parents in, a, in an odd way. But... Um, yeah, I. Other than that, I mean, you know, I the rest of the cast I think is uh, very effective. Ben Mendelsohn is good as his friend. I think he, like you said, it's nice seeing his friend not be that that antagonistic force that yes. you kind of are expecting. He because actually, frankly, there is enough of an antagonistic force out yeah, there. Yeah, there there really is. Yeah. There really is. Um, but you know, I, I do think that it's really interesting the way that they really kind of play that whole heaven and earth thing i mean even right from the beginning you start after the uh at the beginning you know you're up in space as you're coming down um almost like google earth coming down into uh um john kessler's backyard as he and his son are looking at uh at space through their telescope and they play that nicely throughout the course of the film and the fact that uh, Nicholas Cage as John Kessler and his buddy are MIT scientists. And there's always this talk about heaven, like the son is asking about heaven because mom's dead. You know, where do you think she went if you don't believe in heaven? I, I, I mean, I feel like there's, there's all this setup, and I think that it's all in there. And I enjoy all of those elements all through the film. Yeah. So... <laughs> 
I know. I know. I'm with you. I I'm with I'm, you. I here's a here is you know we we've talked about this a little bit, but I think one of the biggest and one of the best choices in the film is that as you say, that they actually lead up to this being an unsavable uh, problem, mm-hmm. right? That it is unsolvable. Yeah. Uh, and even. And and to me, the twist. First of all, this the this film is and should have been more about the father son relationship. I am now I firmly believe that after this conversation, I think you, I think that's exactly what it should have been, and it suffers not having more of that uh, familial resonance. But but second, the big twist at the end is the fact that he works so hard and thinks he has a solution, and it turns out the solution is not about saving the planet right i think that is uh that ends up being an interesting thing i you know one of my favorite sequences is him this is gonna seem really dark is him (laughs) holding his family as the as the city is destroyed by fire and dare i say brimstone that's what i think is so interesting i mean he comes to turn this is a really interesting character journey film you know this is a character who thinks he has to save the world and then he realizes that he can't. And he, what he needs to do is save his son and reconcile with his father. You know, his father is a, is a reverend. And that's something else we hadn't brought up as far as the whole religion versus science thing. And he has kind of parted ways with his father because of the fact that his wife died. And he's very bitter about the yeah. whole God thing and wants nothing to do with it. And the fact that at the end he comes back to his family and he's there with his family, it's, I think it's a beautiful character arc for him over the course of the film as we see him lost at the beginning. I mean, his house is in just complete disarray because it's like, I mean, clearly it was like he was mid-renovation uh, on the house. And I mean, yeah. it's a gorgeous house. I would love to live in that house. Jeez, yeah, that right. kid's bedroom. Jeez. Um, but he's mid-renovations um, when the wife died, and then it's just like he never picked anything up to do any more work. I mean, the ladder is still leaning on the wall. All the wallpaper is scraped off. He clearly just has kind of lost interest in moving forward in his life. And it takes this to kind of get him on the right path to help his son and to finally reconcile with his father. And I think the character arc for him is beautiful. And I think that moment when he finally reconciles and the family hugs in the living room as that giant wave of destruction just rips through the city and destroys everything, um, I think it works. And I think it's so powerful for me. And, um, yeah, I I love it. It, it gorgeous effects all through the film, the visual effects, uh, the, the effects that the team did, I think, are just stunning. The whole destruction of the earth is it's just horrifying and abrupt and frightening. And thorough. And thorough. I, yes. You know, I'm glad you brought up the father. Uh, I would also bring up the sister in that. Yeah, um, yeah. Which I, I think I, I would have brought them up if otherwise they weren't totally forgettable components in the film. And, and I don't mean that, like, to in, in a bad way. I mean it that just to pile on what we've already talked about, I think you're absolutely right— this is a redemption story about the father too that was unearned for me. Like it was, there was just not enough of that. It was, it was a completely sidelined like L story um, that we didn't get to really understand, and instead we had to deal with some, you know, very strange long sequences of trucking around in the mother's ha- mother's trailer park, and um, you know, there were there were just some some things that I think came at the expense of a more meaningful family film at the end of this. And that I had, uh, that I had a problem with. Um, 
because you're absolutely right. I, I feel like what was the point of that sister relationship and uh, trying to reconnect with the father, um, you know, when ultimately, um, you know, we, we just didn't get get it. Yeah. So I, I, I'm with you. I, I wanted more of that. Yeah. No, and I, I again, I, I think that falls into the camp of stuff that I can acknowledge is there, but I still see the stuff that's not there. And maybe I just put a lot into this film that really helps me really enjoy it. Maybe that's what it is. Because <laughs> I, I, I seem to draw a lot out of it. I mean, I, I get so much out of the relationship with the father. Uh, and I think all, all of that comes through his relationship with his sister. I really think that there's a lot there and their conversations um, how carry a lot of weight for me as far as where John is right now and how lost he is and how all of this is required for him to move on and get past the things that are bothering him and finally uh, welcome his family back while letting his son go. And that moment for me when his sister opens the door and looks at, at him and is like, where's Caleb? And he looks at her with tears in his eyes and it's just like, he's safe. And that moment for me is the is, is the big moment in the film that just uh, I mean, between that and when he's saying goodbye to his son. I mean, those moments, I think, are just so strong and so powerful as he's letting go of his son and he knows his son is going to be safe while acknowledging that he is going to die uh, right now with his family. I mean, mm-hmm. I think it's really powerful. I can I can see it. I really can. I think there are those those moments at the end. Uh, I agree with you. Very powerful for me. They just weren't earned. Yeah, and so, again, I yeah. they're earned for me. Yeah. But again, this is my guilty pleasure. <laughs> it, yeah, it, maybe I, I need to it see works. it seventeen more times, and I'll get it. There you go. Yeah, give that a try. Uh, doubt it. Wait, <laughs> what? <laughs> How did do in the box office? Like, uh, like we need to delve too deeply into this. You know, it actually did uh, well for itself. It mm-hmm. actually, um, I think, it kind of. I don't know if I should say it surprised people, um, but it, you know, it opened its uh, at the box office and it was leading the weekend with an estimated 25 million the weekend that it opened. So it was doing well right away. And um, it went on to, let's see, it, uh, it cost about 50 million to make and uh, another, it looks like 37 million for prints and advertising. So it had a, a pretty hefty budget of about $87 million adjusted for inflation that's about almost 95 million uh domestically it made about almost 80 million dollars and internationally it made almost 108 million dollars so all told it made about 100 almost 188 million dollars um adjusted that's uh, about 205 million dollars so it made its money back i mean it found fans it found people who like it it found people who uh were, would at least enjoy watching it, even if they ended up dismissing it in the end. But uh, all told, it came out profitable. It ended up having an uh, adjusted profit per minute of $901,000 per finished minute. So That's great. That is, that's actually great. That surprised me. Yeah, I mean, I, I it did well. I mean, like I said, it does have its contingency of fans. And Nicolas Cage is one of those actors who can sell well internationally. Uh, and I think yes. people, I mean, yeah. that's how Season of the Witch gets made. Right. Right. That's exactly how that gets made. You know, it's one of those films I wonder, you know, I'd be interested to look at, you know, home 
uh, you know, DVD sales. Because I, I wonder if this is a film that a lot of people saw it and, like you say, it was dismissed. Like, not a lot of people saw it twice. Yeah, it's it's like it, 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 I doubt it had the Titanic factor working yeah. for it as far as all the people going back in droves yeah. to uh, to rewatch it time and time again. I mean, it's it's not going to be that sort of film, unfortunately. Yeah. I don't know if any of my uh, let me see if they had any information about DVD sales uh, for this one, because I don't know if it's there. That's one of those things that's it, not always very, uh, uh, very detailed. They don't really give all that. Oh, here you go. Actually, domestic DVD sales, about $24 million. Domestic Blu-ray sales, about $2 million. All told, total domestic sales, $26.5 million. I don't really have a baseline for that. Well, Is that I, good? Don't, I don't either, other yeah. than being able to say that it continued to make more money. Yeah. Uh, you know, let me look. Well, let's compare it to um, what's something else that came out in 2009. Um, geez, 2009, <laughs> 2009 <laughs> movies. Let's ask internet. That's right. Uh, IMDb 2000. Oh, how about Avatar? <laughs> how about? <laughs> no, this is, uh, let me go to the, uh, so here's, uh, here's our list. I mean, 2009, this may be another reason why knowing didn't stand out quite as much. X-Men Origins, Wolverine, Inglorious Bastards, Avatar, Watchmen, Zombieland, The Blind Side, Star Trek, uh, 17 again, The Lovely Bones, and The Hangover make up the top 10 um, in 2009. Um, Mr. Nobody, eight, 500 Days of Summer, so uh, if you look at something, okay, so let's just take a couple. The Lovely Bones, for instance, which was Peter yeah. Jackson bomb. Right. Uh, t- total domestic video sales for DVD and Blu-ray, $13.4 million. So it did a lot worse than how knowing. About, how about Up in the Air? And, the, and Up in the Air, uh, which I, I, I can't imagine it uh, would be knowing, $22.1 million. Um, and then give me a big one. Like Star um, Star Trek. How about uh, Star Trek? <laughs> Star Trek. Star Trek. But see, Star Trek, in terms of of um, most popular films, that was only uh, number seven to number nine. At Lo- Lovely Bones is number nine. So you well, want to like the big like Inglorious Bastards but, or Avatar? But see, but see uh, Lovely Bones at number nine still made less on domestic video sales than Knowing. Do g- give me Avatar. But, but Star Trek. One hundred ninety-two point nine million. Oh, so it it definitely did major sales. Yeah, Avatar did uh, three hundred forty-eight point two million. Okay, so I mean, right. there's a big. Uh, let's look at Inglorious Bastards. Just Inglorious Bastards. Um, so you can see there's a huge uh, jump. Uh, Inglorious Bastards sixty-one point eight million dollars. So. Okay. Yeah. So okay. I mean, knowing still did well enough. Yeah, to... it it held up a little bit. That yeah. surprises me, but I you know, it's not it it doesn't surprise me that much because again, like I find a lot of things that I I didn't like about this film and yet I still it's not rush. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's there was a lot about it that I think really did work and um you know, I I think there are a lot of movies that I might put on before it. Um, but this is not a one-star movie for me. Well, see, this is, that's what I find so interesting about this film, and I, this is, I think, what really made uh, Roger Ebert surprised by the uh, the the just the uh, vitriol that critics seemed to be spewing about this film is that 
even if it's you know i mean even if it's a terrible i mean a, a terrible film i mean there's a lot of stuff it's it's really kind of thought provoking i mean i think in his he says is it uh you know he compares it to other movies that came out uh, the same year like shuttle or the last house on the left remake uh, which also got very bad reviews or although somehow i guess better than this film and I think that was his point. It's like, how can you rank something so low when you've ranked these other films that are clearly much worse and they don't create the the, the interesting conversations or the thought-provoking um, notions in your head? Uh, how can you rank that one so much lower than those? And I think that's what I find interesting about this film is I think there's a lot of ideas going on in it. And this is a film that makes me think about all those ideas. And even if it does have these issues where, yes, the the father-son issue between John and Caleb could have been uh, strengthened. Yes, the father-son issue between John and his own father could have been strengthened. The tie between the, the mystery of the numbers and the destruction of the earth could have been strengthened. But all in all... I end up thinking about all of these things and it puts me in a place where I'm having these inspiring conversations with whoever it is I'm watching with and I find it so much more exciting. And that's why I think this film stands up for me because it's something that that really does take things to a place where I want to talk about it and think about it. Well, I'm glad you brought it up. I'm, I'm glad to have watched it and um, to have been able to uh, chat about it a little bit here. Yeah, absolutely. One last note that I want to bring up is that the the uh, the picture that um, that uh, they find at uh, uh, Rose Burns mother's house that uh, really interesting uh, drawing by I think it's by M- M- Matthias Marian. It's an engraving of Ezekiel's chariot vision, uh, a biblical passage from the book of Ezekiel, um, where. Um, he Ezekiel is having the vision of a hand reaching out of the clouds, giving him a piece of paper. And he sees this, this figure in the sky, uh, God, he sees this like wheel machine, kind of in this fiery wheel machine there. And he sees like these, these angelic beings that are uh, almost like there's these four angelic beings. And all of that is just an interest. And with a, a city and burning the city in on the, the back, hill. Yeah. Burning yeah, in the back. Burning. And just the fact that there's something like that out there that um, is so, uh, I don't know, kind of interesting and horrifying as far as this is something that potentially, I mean, this this drawing was done in 1670. It's a story in the Bible, which obviously was from a long time ago. And just the fact that it potentially could have could be interpreted to be kind of this these visitors from uh, another world i find very interesting and sunspots <laughs> sunspots don't forget sunspots solar flares yes i say we rank it let's do it if you head over to flickchart.com/the next reel you will find our catalog of previously cherished and ranked movies ranked and cherished movies and you'll see all of them 141 of them so far and you can see if your favorites match our favorites and we shall see if knowing is going to crack the top 100 and let me just say for the record my guilty pleasure did (laughs) barely but it did (laughs) is that like uh, a little uh you know you're pushing me there (laughs) (laughs) I, i say nothing i say nothing Okay, here we go. Knowing or the bank job. 
I think that would be the bank job. I would say knowing. I know you would. You know that. For sure. The lights are off in the school on a child hunt. Oh, you're thinking of the little things. Think of the big picture. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, you're thinking of it? <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking uh, of it. Is it your head? <laughs> <laughs> I got it all. There's only, you know what? I will. I will actually give this one to you. Um, I'll give this one to you because again, there's there's a lot going on in this film that's not terrible. Yeah, there's there really a, is. There's, yeah, I think there's a lot going on. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I've already <laughs> forgotten great. which. I've forgotten which one that we were ranking it against. <laughs> now, what were we ranking it against? Uh, the bank job. The bank job. No, I I will give you that too. Okay, knowing or an American Werewolf in London. Oh well, we know where that one is. That's an American werewolf. American werewolf in London. Thank God. <laughs> do we Knowing, know that? <laughs> well, we do. Knowing or Barton Fink. I'm actually think, quite curious where you're going to land on this one. I actually would go Barton Fink. I had a very big appreciation for that film. I'm so glad to hear that. Every time you say that, I'm glad to hear that. I would also go Barton Fink. That's one that, yeah, I, I, I want to watch it again, actually. Uh, knowing or the born identity. Uh, uh, born identity. Yeah, I think I'd go born. Yeah. I think I'd do born with you. Knowing or the natural. <laughs> My favorite ghost baseball player movie. Uh, I would go knowing. But I'm flexible on this one. I, I think I would have to go the natural. Yeah. I know you would. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to find I'm trying to find some wiggle room on this one, but the natural, <laughs> with the lights at the end, come I, on! It's it's a gorgeous film. It really is. Knowing or hot fuzz, well, yeah, hot fuzz. Yeah, it, it has to be hot. <laughs> I'm not that crazy. Uh, I mean, I know it's my right. guilty pleasure. What but... are we savages? <laughs> Knowing or carry. I would do Carrie. Yep. Yeah. You've chosen wisely. Knowing or the Born Supremacy, the second one. Born Supremacy. I would do Born Supremacy also, yeah. Oh, there you go. Look at that. Number 70. Oh, Boom. nuts. <laughs> what? Oh, that feels good. I feel betrayed by flick chart. Oh, <laughs> uh, it was the bank job. Man. Oh. Uh. Oh, that's smarts. I'm sorry. Well, let's just say there are going to be a lot of movies that are ranked higher than Knowing coming up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like about 24 of them <laughs> until I'm happy. <laughs> squeeze those together oh, no. the best you can. No. Hey, this was fun, this guilty pleasure thing. It really was. I had a great time, uh, you know, just talking about films that are you know guilty pleasures yeah. for us and it's you know it really made me think about uh, what is a guilty pleasure and why are some things guilty pleasures and others aren't and uh, you know i don't know i had a lot of fun uh actually i dwelled on it quite a bit trying to figure out what my guilty pleasure was and i ended up watching a lot of them trying to go is this guilty enough yeah is am, this I feel- guilty? <laughs> am i feeling guilty enough <laughs> <laughs> oh. that's awesome it's it this has created a complex I'm actually looking forward to this again. We, I'm looking forward to our next year's guilty pleasure thon. Yes, it is going to be fun. Yeah. 
Uh, I'm going to start thinking about it right now. I know. (laughs) Oh, man. All right. Well, hey, this is a good time, uh, Andrew, and uh, I think uh, you know. Well, are we going to say where we're going next week? Oh, we should probably do that. Yeah. This is big because we've we've been on such a long series. Yeah, we were in 1981 for so long, and now it's uh, jumping into Terry Gilliam. Going to do a little... uh, a marathon of Terry Gilliam films, which is going to be a lot of fun. He's uh, a very interesting director. He's, uh, you know, one of his films that we'll be talking about is my favorite film. So I'm quite looking forward to uh, doing a rundown of uh, of Gilliam's films. It's Baron Munchausen, right? Your favorite? <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, baby. <laughs> is there a doctor in the fish? <laughs> <laughs> ah. I can't wait. I, uh, I'm, I'm with you. These are... These are... Uh, these movies make me big happy. Yes. In, yes. In, yeah. So, right. good. Next week. Yep. I'm out of here. I gotta go to bed. I uh, I'm gonna ponder the end of the world. How did uh, how did Amazon like it? Uh, you know, considering this is my guilty pleasure, I, I'm going with uh, somebody else who loves it. <laughs> okay, brave. That's brave. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're actually, you know, surprisingly on Amazon uh, of the 482 reviews, most of those reviews are five star. 160 of them are five star, and uh, you know, I mean, it's got a good share between the rest of them, but I think yeah. There, is, there are a lot of people who really do like this film. Just nobody I've talked to. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so so uh, read it. You want me yes. to go first because I have a one star. Yeah, why don't you start with the, right. the really sucky one? Um, on a high note. Mine's uh, mine is, and I'm I'm just reading the title because of its cleverness. Just say no to knowing. <laughs> right, and the no is spelled N O. Oh, N-O. And it's in, it's in capital letters. Gotcha. This is by Aaron. Lots of letters in that name. The previews for this movie sold it very well, but it turned out to be a colossal disappointment because no one could make up their minds in the production. This movie is a mishmash of themes, horror, suspense, and disaster, none of which are properly or successfully vindicated through its execution. Nicolas Cage gets a one star on this review for singularly carrying a mediocre script while the rest of the cast flounders along behind him. Uh, the brief touches on theology are ill-formed, poorly executed, and inconsistent. The script writers were having a theology war, and nobody won, so they threw it all in the movie. <laughs> and the story itself just continues down a path toward absurdity until it becomes completely unbelievable, um, until it continues further to the point that you will have you yelling things like, you've got to be kidding me, and oh, come on, at the screen by the time the movie concludes. And the ending, well... The ending was the final grievous insult after sitting <laughs> through a two-hour disappointment. Two words, summit, try harder. Wow. Wow. Harsh. Wow. That, you know, try harder. That's, uh, that's, I mean, uh, if I worked on that movie, somebody would get me, you know, would be getting a well, a strongly worded letter. 
That's that's brutal. That. that is a that's downright mean, if you ask me. Yeah. I almost regret reading that. Interesting. I take it back. Your turn. <laughs> mine is mine is just short and sweet. By Toolman. Uh, a movie that I watched in the theater in its day. If you like Nicolas Cage, you should like this movie. Also deals with a thought-provoking subject matter. All around a good movie. Just short. Aww. Yeah. <laughs> Aww. All right. Not not nearly as vitriolic as yours. See, yours <laughs> yours is mean. one of the, the mean critics who just. <laughs> yeah. Right. The ones that Ebert didn't understand. That's right. Maybe people who love it are too nice. Maybe that's what it is. <laughs> you know, after reading this, after reading my review, I think I may like the movie even more. <laughs> <laughs> the best part about Amazon reviews is nobody knows how to type. <laughs> <laughs> uh, capital letters. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today.